So I'm going to bring the reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Ambition. It's been described as an earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction, as power, honour, fame or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its achievement. Is being ambitious a good or a bad thing? Education Minister David Laws is in no doubt that ambition is a good thing and he feels we don't see enough of it amongst our children and young people. He deplored the depressingly low expectations that he says so many people have and complains we don't do enough to encourage them to reach for the stars. I expect he'd endorse the proverb that says, ambition makes people diligent. And there's an anonymous saying to the effect that ambition is heaven's own incentive to make purpose great and achievement greater. And from the pulpit, Henry, Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher declared that a man without ambition is worse than dough that has no yeast in it to raise it. The rabbis talked about every person having God-implanted impulses in them, drives without which no one would bother to get around to building a house or having children or, or get a job. You definitely get the impression that without ambition we would all be a little bit apathetic, lethargic, maybe too reluctant, maybe too lazy, perhaps too scared to develop the God-given potential that he's placed within us all. And yet for all that there have been people who've said that ambition is not a good thing, William Penn might have had Icarus in mind when he said that those who soar too high often fall hard. And Icarus is the kind of classical example of someone who soared too high. He was the man who managed to build himself a pair of wings so that he could fly, but he flew too near the sun. And the sun melted the wax on the wings and uh, he fell to the ground and perished. It's always been a classical example of someone who actually looks to get above his station a bit. In Shakespeare's Henry VIII, Wolsey charges Cromwell to fling away ambition. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his creator, hope to win by it? Some people think that ambition is all about being greedy for power. Henri, Henri Amiel said, we don't need to be great, so long as we're in harmony with the order of the universe. Moral ambition only desires to fill its place 
and make its note duly heard in the universal concert of God's love. It would be by and large true to say that in the modern Western world, ambition is perceived as being a good thing. We live in a society where upward mobility is encouraged. The government positively tries to get people to move up the social ladder. It's a culture which celebrates individual success and achievement. By and large, in societies where people are expected to stay in their allotted station, ambition is viewed with more suspicion. People have their roles, they're prescribed for them. And you're expected to stay in your place. To be ambitious is to rock the boat, destabilise the social order. So these days we tend not to sing that verse from the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, that goes, The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. There's something in us that says that is not how it ought to be. Though in fact, as we know, the disparity in our society between rich and poor is growing ever bigger by the day. However much we say we don't like it, we live in a society where it happens. Now, by and large, the ancient world inhabited by the Apostle Paul was a bit like a place where you lived, you worked, you died, on the rung assigned to you on the social ladder, and the vast majority of people were stuck firmly at the bottom. You needed to be well-born, by and large, to, to achieve success, fame or distinction. But... The city of Corinth wasn't like that. It was an exception to the rule. It had been destroyed in an earthquake and rebuilt by Julius Caesar just over a century before Paul came preaching there for the first time. And this was a city where the glass ceiling keeping people in their place had been shattered. Caesar populated the city with army veterans and former slaves who'd won their freedom. And for them, this newly founded city was a golden place of opportunity. If you wanted to get on in life, if you wanted to make your mark, if you wanted to rise above your station, if you wanted to make pots of money, Corinth was the place to be. It was the place where the upwardly mobile could rise above their station and achieve fame and success. And one of the issues that Paul struggled with in the church in Corinth was that that some of the leaders at least were ambitious people. You can tell how upset he is with them by the way in which he addresses them. Yes, spiritual babies, worldly, fleshly, unregenerate. You think you're something special, but with all this jealousy and quarrelling going on in the church, you are just being all too human. When a minister or an apostle loses it with a congregation like that and starts berating them and haranguing them, you know that he's not in a good place. And Paul wasn't at the time. Part of the problem was that the the people in the church were using the church almost as a vehicle for their own ambition, really. In a town where your social status was measured by the number of people who counted themselves among your followers and were indebted to you because you were their patron and you looked after them and took care of them, the church could be a good recruiting ground for people who wanted to increase the size of their following, for the number of people who looked up to them and and queued first thing in the morning so that they'd be greeted and have their needs provided. The church was being used as a networking place. And that was leading to the kind of jealousy and quarrelling that Paul condemns here. 
People were using it as a way of trying to find the next step up the ladder. There was rivalry within the church as people competed to get a a larger number of followers. And different people were using Paul's name and the name of his colleague Apollos as a way of advancing their own interests. And there were disagreements as to which amongst them was the better Christian leader, which was the most prestigious apostle to count as your own. And that's why Paul says, look, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? What are we really? We, we are workers in God's field. I planted a seed. Apollos watered it. We are menial labourers. It's God you should be thinking about. Because it's God who makes the seed grow. The one who plants is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. It's God who gives the increase. That is who it's all about. It is all about God in the church. Not about the minister. Not about you or me. The NIV uses the word worldly to translate two slightly different words in Paul's harangue at the church, both of which are translated as carnal or fleshly in some other translations. And the point Paul is trying to make here is that those who are within the church trying to establish their position as spiritual leaders were anything but spiritual in their attitudes. The fleshly mindset has been described as the epitome of human independence from God. It is the mind set that says, it's all about me. It's all about how well I'm doing, how much respect I have, the position of responsibility that I hold, uh, how much church caters for for my needs. Rudolf Bultmann talked about the human self-reliant attitude of the man who puts his trust in his own strength and in that which is controllable by him. And Paul condemns an attitude of self-interest here. He said they were motivated entirely by purely human drives. He deplores the way in which they were using the church as a vehicle for their own self-advancement. They were importing attitudes and values from the surrounding go-get-it culture into the church. And it's a bit like, you know, how cold it's been recently, a bit like someone coming into a warm room full of people and leaving the door open behind them. And and long before they've got warm like everybody else, everybody else is freezing because the cold draft has come in. And it was like that. People had come into the church and left the door open behind them and the whole church was being affected by this kind of attitude that it is all about me. It's all about how far I can go, how important I am, what I can achieve. And and the church, I think, in today's culture, to some extent, wrestles with this because we live in a society where ambition is commended as a good thing, where there is an expectation that we should always be looking for the next promotion, the next step up. And yet Paul says, well, that has no place within the church. You shouldn't have that kind of attitude within the church. You shouldn't be concerned about how well you're doing in the church. I think that's one of the tensions we resolve with. Do we have to switch our ambition off when we walk through the doors of a church? Some people struggle with this. We kind of have this kind of, we've got to go get it out there. And in church, we've got to be quite different people. And, And some people struggle in the employment world from this point of view. Because, you know, in church, we have the attitude of being humble. And if you want a job out there, you have to be anything but humble 
You have to say how good you are and how much you've achieved and what your potential is. And you have to, to really big yourself up. And people who are at home in the church culture struggle with that whole idea of making real a big thing about themselves. It doesn't come easily to them. And equally, when you're looking to employ people within a Christian context, you know, sometimes we can import attitudes and we expect the person applying for the job to big themselves up. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't transfer into a church context particularly easily either. And I wonder whether that's perhaps why some business people don't get on in church, because church is not conducive to satisfying the desire of upwardly mobile people to feel that they're getting anywhere. You don't get anywhere in church. As a minister, you don't have a career structure. My brother said to me at one point, in this point in your career development, you should be so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, there is no career development for ministers. The church doesn't work that way. The humility commended by Christ doesn't sit easily with personal ambition. And yet, and yet I want to say that Christ needs strongly motivated people in his church. He doesn't want us all to be sitting there with arms folded, quite content with the way things are. Thank you very much indeed. As long as somebody else gets on with it, that's all right. I'm okay with it as it is. Our modesty, if our modesty means that we're always waiting for somebody else to take the initiative, then nothing is ever going to get done. And we're just left in a state of inertia. And surely there's something about the desire to do well, the desire to succeed, that is part of the way in which God has made us. What happens is that so often sin corrupts something good. It takes a God-given desire to do well and to achieve and and to do something that you could justly be proud of and, and pushes that just a little bit too far. So the focus becomes upon how well I'm doing and a matter of pride and it's all kind of, you know, my, my, my sense of self-worth is dependent upon how well I'm doing and my latest pay rise and my progress up the corporate ladder rather than the unconditional love that God has for me. And when we become too bothered about our own position, then there's a danger that, you know, we disregard other people in our clamber to make it to the top. And seeking to do well and seeking to rise and seeking to be successful, there is nothing wrong with that so long as you are not trampling on other people on your way. That's the danger. That's the danger. The word translated jealousy in the New International Version is is a difficult one. It's the word from which, which we get our term zeal. And like ambition, being zealous can be a good or a bad thing. In the letter we know as 2 Corinthians, Paul commends the church there for being zealous on his behalf. Yet here in the first letter it's quite clear that zeal isn't something that he's happy at seeing there. In his letter to the Philippians, he said, I was so zealous that I persecuted the church of God. It can be totally misguided depending what you're zealous for and how that is expressed. Zeal is the driving force behind all fundamentalist religious movements, the conviction that you are right and nothing else matters. But it goes bad when a zeal for God leads you to persecute those who don't share that zeal, or you are intolerant of those who have a different view from yourself. Zealous ambition can be a good thing, but when that drives you actually to disregard other people around you in church, It can be disastrous. 
Yet if ambition is shorn of its self-centred orientation, it is a vital quality in the service of Christ. Because without people who have the drive to succeed, it's all too easy for the church to lapse into an attitude that says that mediocre is good enough. The church needs people who will say, no, we can do better than this. But it's we who can do better than this. People who will harness their ambition to succeed and do things well to Christ's kingdom and to work with others to ensure that all that we do is done to the glory of God so that honour goes not to me but to the name of Christ by how we do what we do. God looks for people who will be ambitious for his kingdom. God looks for people who will be ambitious for Brighton Road Baptist Church. God looks for people who will be ambitious for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the difference that can make. If ambition is an earnest striving for power and honour and fame and glory, God wants to harness that earnest striving for Jesus. And when that happens, that is worship. Worship expressed in what we sing, how we sing it, and how we live. It's all about Jesus.